So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we are telling the story of one of the most subversive figures in musical history, Malcolm McLaren, the notorious manager for the Sex Pistols. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, a classic album dissection of Radiohead's Kid A with author Stephen Hyden. You are listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we are with Stephen Hyden, the author of his latest book, This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. A return guest to Sound Opinions, Jim. Welcome back to the show. Absolutely. Yes, I'm I'm like a friend of the pod now, I think. There you go, man. I think so, especially (laughs) if you join our Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) Music critics have to support each other in these days. That is correct. You're doing a good job of uh, supporting uh, the music scene and the uh, and Radiohead in particular with this new book, Stephen. Twenty years on, it's still a, a, a somewhat controversial record in, in Radiohead's uh, discography. I've, I've talked to people who either love or hate this album. There seems to be no middle ground. I think a number of things distinguish this record for music fans in general, Radiohead fans in particular. I think it is one of the most radical fourth albums in rock history in terms of what it does in regard to what its predecessor did. You're coming off a an album in OK Computer that is considered a masterpiece, a guitar rock, majestic, you know, everything that can be said with guitar music is being said with this record in 1997. And three years later, they come out with Kid A, which you write uh, very persuasively about. Explain, if you can, the transition from this majestic guitar record to Kid A, which had very few guitars on it, uh, per se. What happened in those three years? Well, the book opens with this scene that took place at a concert in Birmingham, England, in 1997, where uh, you know Radiohead was in the midst of the OK Computer tour and it was really that moment like where they were expected to become the next big rock band uh you know, they were going to take the mantle from whoever it would have been at that time maybe pearl jam maybe u2 and cement their status as this, as this like arena rock behemoth and i think when you look at radiohead in the 90s there was this I think trajectory that they were on where they really wanted to be that I think for a while I think you know they toured a lot in the 90s you know they they did like the MTV Beach House you know they played like the House of Blues in every town I mean they they did the things that rock bands need to do to get popular and they get to the show in 97 and I I feel like there was this realization that I think a lot of people get to when they are on the cusp of that real kind of stardom where he realized that you know this isn't really what I thought it would be Mm-hmm. And he has a breakdown, essentially. Tom York. Tom York does, yes. And in the book, I really position that as like the beginning of Kid A, in a way. Because I think for Radiohead, 
they had reached the end of something with OK Computer where they did become really famous and they really almost became their own genre of British rock. There were all these bands that were essentially doing what they did on the bends in OK Computer. You know, Coldplay being a big example, but this band Travis, I don't know if people remember them, but they were pretty popular in the late 90s. I think there was also something about the end of the century also really weighing on them. There was this idea that like music wasn't going to be the same in the next century, but like what was it going to be exactly? Mm-hmm. And it was something that I think Tom York first really wrestled with when they got off that tour. I think it was like in mid-1998. He really struggled to like answer that question. Like what are we going to sound like? And he really became obsessed with this record label known as Warp Records, which uh, Aphex Twin was on that uh, was on that label, you know, a bunch of other like big electronic acts. And he was initially trying to make music that sounded like that. But he is first and foremost like a rock singer-songwriter. And it was sort of awkward, I think, when he was trying to do that. So it was, I think, again, this idea of like not wanting to do what we had done because that's almost become a cliche already. But also, what do we do next? What are we going to sound like? What's rock music going to sound like? You know, what's the world going to be like? And that's something that the, you know they came together and were trying to figure out. I think for you know the better part of two years. The one thing that I thought also you you sort of touched on, and I got the sense when I was writing about the record, because I interviewed uh, York and um, a couple of the other band members, Ed O'Brien, around that time. They were talking about this idea, and they weren't really speaking to it directly, but the whole idea of being kind of bored with what they were doing. Especially Tom York seemed excited about these warp bands like Autechre and things like that, that he was just motivated by this. This music was genuinely speaking to him in a way that other rock bands weren't. hearing this, and I wonder what your research uh, talked about, was that it was essentially Tom who was pushing let's go here, and the other band members to varying degrees were going along or kind of saying, that's not a good idea, I don't know why we're doing that. And there was <laughs> But like I a, have a guitar. <laughs> there's, a, there, there's a breakup in the wind. I've heard that, you know, they mentioned that a few times, like they were, that was actually part of the, the conversation within the band there, should we break up? What, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, you have Tom York in the band who is the songwriter, essentially. He's the one bringing the songs to the band, and then they're realizing it and fleshing it out. And Especially Johnny Greenwood being like his lieutenant in the band and almost like musical director, I guess, of Radiohead in a way. And he's not bringing them songs. He's Initially, he's just bringing these sort of like glitchy soundscapes that are basically like bad imitations, I think, of Warp Records mm, artists, yeah. you know? And yeah, there was this uh, thing from Ed O'Brien where he talked about how like, he had the idea initially that, you know, we should just make a record like The Queen is Dead by The Smiths, yeah. you know, just make like a very song-oriented record because I think for him and maybe some other guys in the band, like OK Computer was already this sort of like concept record that, uh, you know, was already pretty dystopian on its own. And it's like, well, why don't we just get back to writing really nice songs? I think the other thing with Tom York, too, and I alluded to this earlier, but there's a quote in the book. I, I, I use it as one of the epigraphs that Tom York says, 
uh, you know, I'm annoyed by how pretty my voice is. Yeah, you know, right. Like, yeah. like yeah. I, th- I think, I think, like his voice in particular, like he really didn't like how prominent his voice was and how other people were now imitating it. And when you listen to Kid A, one of the things that sets it apart from other Radiohead records is it doesn't have those like operatic, you know, mm-hmm. soaring vocals that you hear on Paranoid Android and The Tourist or uh, you know, Fake Plastic Trees that are so distinctively Radiohead. And if I could be who you wanted If I could be who you wanted oh. He's like distorting his voice. He's burying it in the mix, you know. It, mm. It's it's about making his voice and his lyrics like another part of like the soundscape rather than setting it apart. The idea of York um, fighting with himself, essentially, uh, didn't seem to be in a good place mentally. How were they able to pull through that? What was the turning point from going to this, wh- where do we go, how do we do it? Was there a particular moment or song where the band sort of coalesced and said, okay, I think we're, we figured it out? Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, everything in its right place. When they hit upon that, it seemed like that at least was a vision of the record. Because before that, it seems like they were, you know, the proverbial band looking in the dark for their car keys type thing. It's like they know <laughs> what they want to yeah. do is out there, but they don't know where it is exactly. Yeah. And I think when they made everything in its right place, which started out as like a piano-based dirge, essentially, that Nigel Godrich didn't really respond to. But then they had the idea to uh, play it on that Prophet synthesizer. Mm-hmm. And it just created that incredible sound that you hear at the beginning of the record, that keyboard tone, which... Yeah just sets the tone of like this ominous tension that's going to occur on the rest of the record. It's just perfect. Mm -hmm. So I think that at least provided a vision for the record. But again, it still took a long time for them to figure it out after that. And Mm -hmm. one thing I think is fascinating about them is that for as critically acclaimed as they are, they're a very insecure band. There's this thing that occurs on a lot of their records where they're sort of running away from who they are for like the first half of the record. And they're recording (laughs) all this stuff and they don't like it. And then they end up going back to it and realizing that, you know, when, when we play as a band, like, we're actually, like, really good, you know? Got to remind actually, themselves of that every yeah. once in a while. Yeah, and I, and I think that's actually true of Kid A, because as much of, as it is a departure from OK Computer, like, it's not an Aphex Twin record. You know, it is no. a Radiohead record. And they were able to integrate those influences into what they were doing but still be themselves. I think especially when they took those songs on the road. Like if you hear the bootlegs of that time. Absolutely, yeah. They, they turn those songs into rock songs. You know, like mm-hmm. the national anthem becomes a rock song. Even like the title track, Kid A, which they didn't play very much. If you hear like bootleg versions of that, they turned it into this like majestic song mm-hmm. that like it does not have that flavor on the record. Standing in the shadow of the end.
that's who they were. They couldn't run away from it. No, and that rhythm section always kept them grounded. That's what made it work in those big festival ground settings. You know, you talked about the Prophet 5 uh, kind of giving them away. And, you know, it's an old analog synthesizer. It is not cutting-edge technology. Richard D. James, the Aphex Twin, was famous for recording entire tracks uh, with the sound of a Coke can. <laughs> he was truly digital and, and inventive. Radiohead's somewhere in the middle. I, how was he influencing them? Well, all you have to do is listen to, like, Idiotique, which is, like, one of the, like, big songs from, from Kid A, and, like, the, the influence mm. of Aphex Twin is, like, plain as day on that song. <laughs> to the point where I think people that don't like Kid A look at it as like a watered down version of like what Aphex Twin was doing and or what the Warp Records people were doing. I think all of the 10,000 records uh, Aphex Twin was selling <laughs> at a time. <laughs> well, well, you know, I mean cuz I mean as you said like Kid A is still a controversial record and there's people yeah. that don't like it because they feel that it's like too esoteric and there's also people that feel on the other side that the experimentation aspect of it has been overstated, you know, that it's mm -hmm. like not as cutting edge as people like to say it is. I think the point is that Radiohead being in the position that they were made a choice to go in that direction mm -hmm. and to, I think, consciously forsake the whole like biggest band in the world sweepstakes, mm -hmm. you know, because like the same month that Kid A came out, you two put out all that you can't leave behind, which was, mm -hmm their big comeback record and like yeah. Bono I feel like on every award show around that time he would go on and say we're applying for the job of biggest rock band in the world you know right, reapplying right. I think we're the word yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly it's like such a pompous thing but it's like you have to be that pompous to aspire to you know that that title and it's just a a very telling juxtaposition between that and what Radiohead was doing and I think Radiohead ultimately being more prescient uh, in a way, because I think they realized, maybe unknowingly or subconsciously, that being the biggest rock band in the world was not going to matter, really, in the 21st century. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. like yeah, that title. So if they had chased that in the way that, like, Oasis did, for instance, I think they would yeah. have ended up yeah. being more tied to the 90s <laughs> than yeah. they were, you know? They were smart enough to realize that times were changing, and it allowed them paradoxically in a way to still be like one of the few kind of big rock bands that people know. After a quick break, we'll unpack that paradox about Radiohead and Kid A with Stephen Hyden. Then we'll take a look at manager Malcolm McLaren's impact on music, for better or worse. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. We're back, and we're still talking with Stephen Hyden about Kid A, and for once, I wasn't the one who brought up Brian Eno. <laughs> I write a bit about Eno in the book because, you know, Radiohead never worked with Eno, which I think is interesting. I, I wonder if that would have been too on the nose for them. If they, you know, because they loved Talking Heads so much. Yeah, Remain yeah. in Light was one of the big inspirations for Tom York. That was Talking Heads' fourth record. I think that was a model for Radiohead. They never worked with Eno, but I think they utilized some of the oblique strategies type yeah. thing. Like, there's that story about how, at one point, Nigel Godrich split the band in two groups, and, like, one group would work on part of a song, and the other group would work on another part of a song, and then they would, like, trade 
You know, yeah. that seems like a very kind of Eno-esque type. No, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I didn't really get this as much of an Eno file as I am until we were talking to Chris France of the Talking Heads a couple of weeks ago. A, Eno was incredibly expensive, and B, he was kind of a pain in the butt. So why not <laughs> right. just read all the stuff he's been uh, talking about philosophically, oblique strategies and embracing the accident, and not subject yourself to the pain? Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's an interesting thing with Eno, I guess, having a reputation as being a glory hog maybe a little bit. But I don't know. I love Brian Eno. He clearly yeah. had a big influence on Kid A. I mean, Tree Fingers, again, is a, that's as much of a obvious Eno homage as mm-hmm. Idiotique is to Aphex Twin, you know? But so so is so is the influence of the uh, more out there edge of Krautrock. Are you thinking of like the national anthem being an example of yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what's interesting about that song too is that the that bass line was written by Tom York when he was a teenager, and it was just mm. something that they had laying around for a long time. And um, that's a song too that, as like esoteric as people like to claim Radiohead is. That's a pretty primal song. Like the rhythm section of that song is oh, yeah. like yeah. probably like the hardest rocking, uh, some of the hardest rocking sounds in Radiohead's canon. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing about Radiohead, and it's why I wanted to write about the part of their career that preceded Kid A, because when we talk about Radiohead now, like the people who don't like Radiohead always accuse them of being this sort of intellectual band that. It, very esoteric. It's hard for like the common man to understand this band. They don't have that visceral power that like real rock bands have. And the irony of that is that when they started, you know, that they had this big hit with with uh, Creep. You know, there was this perception, I think, in the press uh, certainly that they were this one-hit wonder band that you know had this sort of dopey grunge ripoff song. Mm-hmm. And yeah. well, it was the and, era of Bush. Exactly. You know, that that was yeah. And, and people, I think, grouped Radiohead into that company. Like, you know, if you read the reviews of even, like, OK Computer, like, in the lead of the, I think, in the reviews of Rolling Stone and, and the Spin Review, they still talk about creep, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that creep looming in their legacy, I feel like that was still on their minds when they went into Kid A. And I think it influenced them to... <laughs> not go there you know not to do like the the ka-chunk like the loud guitar noise yeah yeah, you know which 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 is what allowed them to break through in america in a way that like say suede didn't like other british bands at that time like they were grungier they were more american sounding really on pablo honey than a lot of british bands yeah well and then and then kid a is like their most european record you know it's like Mm -hmm. not very american at all even though americans ended up liking it i think first before the British did. I mean, the British press were very hard on that record. Hmm. Americans at least gave it the benefit of the doubt. You know, even people who didn't really get it would say, like, well, we think it's a masterpiece. We don't really know yet. Whereas <laughs> yeah. the British the British press just slagged it, like, hardcore. Like when yeah, it came out. and I think there was so much anticipation. That's another thing that we need to talk about in regard to this record. I mean, I, I remember, I went back on some stuff I wrote back then, and you know, the word most anticipated album of, of that year, of 2000, came up in multiple articles. I mean, it was just a, a fait accompli 
that everybody was going to be waiting for this record. They couldn't wait to get here. And in fact, that hope came true when you said it started trickling out online and fans were going nuts and trying to debate it before it even came out. And then it comes out and it's nothing like uh, the, the previous record. And people are just going, what the heck were we waiting for? You know? But obviously it wasn't Chinese democracy, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a Guns N' Roses, you know, follow-up to a follow-up that just completely flopped. It was a record that had real legs. And I think the rehabilitation of that record for a lot of people started, well, you'd mentioned this earlier, Stephen, the tours around that record. They opened with the national anthem. I remember at Grand Park, I'll never forget, Jim and I were at that show Yeah. Uh, the, the following summer. And the sound of the national anthem, Colin Greenwood playing that bass line, and it was just like that... The wall, you know, there were no walls, but if there were, they would have been shaking and falling down because it was just this momentous sound, and you're going, oh my God, this is incredible. You know, suddenly this is a, oh, it's a rock band. They're mm -hmm. still a rock band, you know? for the fact that despite this, like you said, almost all the reviews in, in Europe and England in particular were, were not good. Uh, Nick Hornby took it down in the New Yorker, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, what rehabilitated that record in terms of it becoming a signpost album, not only of that year, but of the decade? And now a lot of people are saying it's the most important record or, you know, most influential record of the 21st century. I think what you said about them, uh, how they were able to tour that record and transform those songs live, I think that yeah. definitely had something to do with it. I also feel like Radiohead, in the 90s, after Pablo Honey, they were able to make difficult albums their brand. You know, there was this idea, I think, for a long time that... When you get a Radiohead record, you're not supposed to like it right away. At least that's how it was like for me growing up. Mm. And it's weird to say that now because like the Benz and OK Computer don't seem difficult at all. They just seem like classic yeah. rock records, basically. But you know, if you were used to Pablo Honey, to hear a song like Planetelix, for instance, was like kind of different. It's like, wow, this is not creep. This is pretty out there. So I know for me, like when I first heard Kid A, I wasn't sure what to make of it, but. I was going to stick with it because it was Radiohead. And for a certain generation, it was like, this is our Beatles, you know, like this, and this is like their Sgt. Pepper in a way. This is like their grand studio experiment. Mm -hmm. They're pushing the, they're pushing the boundaries, sort of paradigm mm -hmm. shifting record. And it's like, you don't want to be the one who doesn't get it, you know, <laughs> if you're a kid, especially. Yeah. So I, I think it just encouraged people to dig in and, mm -hmm. and, and to absorb it in a way that maybe they wouldn't for another record. And then, of course, there's so many weird things that happen after that record comes out. The following month, you have the Gore v. Bush election, yeah. which ends up being this contested election that just goes on forever. I think part of the criticism of Kid A at the time when it, that it came out was that, oh, this is just like a a miserablest record. You know, like this this dystopian future. It's like, cheer up. You know, like, why is this so dark? And... <laughs> As the you know year unfolded in 2000 and the decade unfolded, it didn't seem so dark. It just seemed like oh, this is the way things are, you know. And now, I compared think to that 2020, also... it sounds cheerful. Exactly, <laughs> you know. And I think it speaks to people for that 
for that reason too. The thing about that band is that they've stuck together for now a, a, a long time. I mean, it, you couldn't have predicted that around the, the making of Kid A that they would have, <laughs> which is remarkable. And, and they've grown into this really powerful act, you know, despite the fact that they're, their aversion to becoming the big act and the big arena, they, they're playing arenas. And those shows are phenomenal. I remember taking my daughter when she was a teenager to see them, and she'd been to a bunch of shows with me. She was very interested in music. She recognized that there was something different and something more sophisticated going on. It was like, these guys are like at another <laughs> level. I mean, she could already tell. It was kind of like the lighting, everything was sort of well thought out, the presentation. Kid A seemed to be a very important part of that uh, development. You know, the tour after that, figuring out how to do that record live. I, I was thinking, how are they going to do this? You know, and they did. They figured it out. I mean, yeah. How, how did they do it? Well, again, I think it goes back to something I was saying before, how I feel like in every big album that Radiohead has ever made, they go through this period where they want to get away from themselves. They're rethinking their process. The things that they're playing, they don't like because it sounds too much like a Radiohead song. And that existed on Kid A. It also was a problem when they made In Rainbows. You listen to that record and you're like, this just sounds like guys in a room playing. I mean, how why, why would this be difficult to do? But that was another like two-year process of just banging their heads against the wall, trying to get away from themselves, and then realizing that we have a core essence to us that one we can't get away from, even if we like, even though we really want to. But two, like this essence is what makes us special, you know. Mm -hmm. And and I and I really think you know, like with Kid A, they were able to be an arena band and feel like they were doing something different without actually being different if that makes mm. sense that they could have toured in a way they could have done like the neil young trans thing like where they're singing into a vocoder <laughs> and like it, yeah, and it's yeah. so far beyond like what you associate with neil young but on those tours they were they still fronted as a rock band you know yeah. they weren't being an electronic band they were being a rock band and they were doing those songs in the way that they play live. And I think that, again, is like their power. It's like there's that chemistry that exists between those five guys. You know, you mentioned how they've been around for 30 years. No one's been replaced. You know, it's the same yeah. five guys, which is like such a unique thing in, in rock history, obviously. Uh, there's obviously something that exists between those five guys. It's a personality. It's a sonic, you know, fingerprint. And it's something that even if they're changing over the years, they can integrate the new songs into that and it still sounds like them mm -hmm. and you're right i mean radiohead i think they headlined coachella in 2018 it might have been 2017 like, name me another rock band of their, of their generation that could do that credibly yeah. you know there really isn't any like other 90s rock band that could do that and i think kid a had a lot to do with that i think kid a was the album along with in rainbows that ensured that they were not going to be a 90s band you know, like mm -hmm. the way that, you know, like I love Pearl Jam, but Pearl Jam is a 90s band. Like their yeah. most famous albums yeah. came out in one decade. Mm -hmm. Radiohead has famous albums in the 90s. They have a, and they have classic albums in the aughts. And it just, it made it so millennials and even, you know, Zoomers could have a Radiohead album that felt like theirs. Right. Yeah, they've managed to preserve a certain amount of integrity while doing it, you know, which is uh, remarkable too. You know, not many people say bad things about them as 
you know, commercial entity. Like, oh, they sold out, man. There's not too many sold. Their sold out, sellout moment was right at the start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Out. Yeah. <laughs> I know, exactly. They had to run away from it. But And you know what the odd thing is, though? That song has staying power for a reason. Right. As cheesy as we may think. I mean, Prince performed it at Coachella and just, like, owned it. There, it resonates through the decades in a way that they probably ne- never intended, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I love that song. And it's, it's funny about this book because... You know, I obviously write a lot about Kid A, but I also wrote quite a bit about Pablo Honey because that was the first Radiohead album I ever heard. I loved it when it came out. I mean, there's a lot of just riffy rock songs that have kind of terrible lyrics, but you can play it loud, and I think it's pretty fun for what it is. And it was only after there were other Radiohead albums that I didn't like it as much. In the book, I kind of write about Pablo Honey in the context of Kid A because I think that's something about music history. Albums come out in a particular year, but then when we look back on them, they also exist before they came out. And we use subsequent work to measure the earlier work. And it changes how we feel about certain things. Mm. And I was like, I want to listen to this album the way I did when I was 15. You know, I want to try to recreate (laughs) that and not have the judgments that I have now because of all these other records. Um, And I think if you do that, Pablo Honey is a fine album. You know, again... Radiohead making a dumb rock record, how radical would that be if that was their next album? If they made an album <laughs> like Pablo Honey. Now, yeah. Right. That would be the most experimental thing that they could do. It, yeah. Just to make dumb rock songs. You know, yeah. I, it's not going to happen, but it'd be We're going to do our Foghat record now. Well, a dumb rock record from Radiohead, I would, I would applaud that. Uh, <laughs> to borrow the title of Stephen's book, uh, it probably isn't happening. <laughs> this isn't happening. Uh, the, the story of the making of Kid A by Stephen Hyden, a friend of Sound Opinions. Thank you for coming back on the show, Stephen. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. Do you have thoughts on Kid A and Radiohead? Start a conversation in our Facebook group or leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. When we return, the story of the man behind the Sex Pistols, Malcolm McLaren. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. We're back, and now we're turning our attention to the life and work of Malcolm McLaren, the controversial manager of the Sex Pistols. I am an anti-coast. I am an anarchist. Don't know what I want, but I know how to get it. I want to destroy, possibly, because I want to be. We want to welcome British journalist uh, Paul Gorman to the show. His new book is called The Life and Times of Malcolm McLaren. Greg, I think it has the distinction of being the heaviest uh, book we have ever (laughs) talked about on Sound Opinions. (laughs) It is quite an accomplishment, Paul. Encyclopedic, uh, but gripping. Welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, You know, why don't we start at the obvious place? Malcolm McLaren... Why is he worth uh, 860-odd pages of biography? You know, because it's a name, let's face it, uh, that many people won't even know unless they're of a certain age, knowing him as the spiky-haired redhead who uh, steered the, (laughs) steered, in quotes, the career of the Sex Pistols. Right. Um, What drew you to this subject? Well, because I didn't think that really his contribution to pop culture and the wider culture had 
been recognised in the right way. I think he was partially to blame for this because, you know, he dubbed himself in the Sex Pistols biopic The Embezzler. And so he kind of painted himself into a corner as this kind of caricature manager, evil manager and manipulator of the media and the people that, uh, who were his charges. When in fact, that was a position he took. You know, I got to know him later in life and he was, uh, he was quite interesting about that. He said that he didn't realise that people would take it seriously. If you called yourself the embezzler, he thought, well, they're going to know that it's a put-on. And in fact, of course, uh, the opposite was true. And so uh, some of the people that he worked with, you know, kind of uh, burnished that reputation. And so I thought he needed springing from that trap. And so um, that's really why I embarked upon it. Well, like all uh, great biographies, Paul, and this is a great one. Thank you. Um, even if you take out the music fandom element, uh, if you don't care about early Adamant or Bow Wow Wow or the Sex Pistols or indeed uh, McLaren's own brief hip hop career, but influential, uh, you know, uh, Buffalo Gals, what a life. You know, it turns out that Malcolm McLaren's greatest influence, besides the situationists and Dada and, and throwing hand grenades into the middle of anything, was his grandmother. Yeah. This notion that comes from grandma that the worst sin is to be boring. Better to be bad than to be boring. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, he was kind of inculcated in this uh, from a very early age. His father left the family household when he was 22 months old. His mother wasn't particularly interested in him or his uh, slightly older brother. And so McLaren in particular was left to the clutches of this very domineering grandmother who'd been a frustrated treader of the boards. She wanted to be in the music hall or, you know, become an actress. And she'd been stymied by that at a young age. And she was an extremely magnetic, charismatic and troublemaking person. And so I think she kind of got her jollies by getting hold of this kid at a young age and really teaching him in the ways to be naughty and the ways to be extrovert <laughs> and the ways to upset people and the ways to be unembarrassable and all of those things that if you know anything about McLaren that you associate with him. Yeah, he did her proud. You know, and we also get uh, an historic portrait of those post-World War II years in the UK where, you know, truly the uh, identity of the empire was being questioned. And then the crazy psychedelic era, mm -hmm. which had an impact on young Malcolm, mm -hmm. uh, the punk era where he was front and center. And then the the multiculturalism that was coming in with hip hop and the, the growing diversity mm -hmm. of, uh, of England. Well, you know, uh, this was another reason, uh, another impulse to write the book is here is somebody who was born in January 1946. So, I mean, you can kind of calculate that his inception was really the end of the Second World War, nine months yeah. before. And so he springs into being in that very period when, in, certainly in Britain, certainly in the US and certainly in the West, a lot of very interesting people start to come uh, to life in the 50s and 60s, say the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or, or those people, uh, slightly older than McLaren, exported popular culture and made it really the mainspring of 
our cultural activity in this country. He, he did that in a different way because he had the brain and the heart and the aspect of a visual artist. And so he kind of brought art, art practice and design and those visual dexterities to popular culture. And that changed the game considerably. By 1980, by 1977, certainly through the post-punk era, what you looked like and the way you visually expressed yourself meant as much, he believed, as the music that you made. It was no longer good enough for Rory Gallagher to wear a check shirt and play very mm. long guitar solos. Very, a great artist. But there had to be a visual element which would stimulate the populace. And this was really his central preoccupation. God save the Queen! The fascist regime! It made you a moron! Potential hate bomb! We have that thing which is what McLaren used to call, and I have to think about this to get it right because I often get it wrong, the look of music and the sound of fashion. And what he meant by that was that when one kind of closes into the other, everything pops. And so when you get Roxy Music, say, or David Bowie, or these very English people, who British people, who understand visual culture and then combine it with their unique sound, something else happens. And it's particularly appropriate to, for some reason, to this tiny island and that was a lifelong obsession of his. And so here was a very potent mixture of politics and art, radical politics with radical art thought. And this appealed very much to the young Malcolm Edwards as he was then. Did he have a sense of what he wanted to do at that point? Make trouble. Shake things up. <laughs> yeah, always. <laughs> but, you know, there was, there was an intent behind it, but it was this disgruntlement which Jim was talking about, which comes from the grandmother, this dissatisfaction and this willingness to upset the daily life. You know, the one thing about McLaren that kind of I, I can't quite suss out is that he, I don't think he ever thought of the Sex Pistols as a great band. I mean, you know, the group that couldn't play, a fabulous disaster. No, no, he, he did. He did. He did think that they were a great band, but he realised that there is a conversation that he has with Steve Jones on Jones's Jukebox, uh, Steve's yeah. um, radio show in L.A. But this is way back. Decades in later. Yeah. 2006. And Steve Jones says, why did you say that? We could play. You knew we could play. And they were a very dynamic band. But he said, of course I knew you could play, but I knew that that wouldn't make any difference. Going to a record company at that time and saying, I've got a great bunch of guys who can play really well, wouldn't make any difference. What he had to do was to show that here was a different group that had this willfully amateurish approach, in a way, to undercut, you know, we all know about the dinosaur acts and we all saw them, you know. And he knew that by showing these bands, and this band in particular, could play and perform and show out and step out, he would inspire other people. Well, and of course,
course, it, it still does. I mean, that one album uh, continues to inspire bands. And when you look at the live footage of the Pistols, um, you know, Johnny Rotten may be asking, you ever get the feeling you've been cheated? <laughs> ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. But you, you, you couldn't take your eyes off what you had just seen. No, you know, it, yeah. it was gripping and galvanizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and still inspirational. So I, I think that the interesting word in the lexicon in regards to McLaren is punk, really, because these days we have punk architecture or punk bakers or punk artisanal coffee makers. I'm sure there are. <laughs> you know, I haven't, I haven't had any, but I'm sure it's out there. And he defined it a bit later on when uh, he was backstage at a fashion show in Milan these in 1982, so five years after 1977, right? That's really when punk broke. Um, and he defined it as being DIY and anti-corporate. And yeah. really those things you can apply to hip-hop. You can apply to any musical or media uh, genre where people are stepping out beyond you know the received way of ways of working and doing it for themselves mclaren of course was married to uh, vivian westwood who would go on to become a superstar in the world of fashion there's a point in the book where uh, somebody is talking of vivian westwood and uh, malcolm mclaren that they were rooted in that kind of particularly british victorian fascination with the naughty you know, they were obsessed right. with sex. Right. Um, I mean, you know, at one point, the ever-changing uh, McLaren Westwood boutique was called sex, you know. Uh -huh. So, you know, when you get to Bow Wow Wow, sexualizing uh, a very young teenager in Annabella Lewin. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, this is a misguided moment, I would say. I wouldn't say that most of it is, because actually in McLaren's mind and... In a way, he was quite childlike, and this is by no means, I'm not defending him. I, I think you realised if you looked at the book, it's not a hagiography. I do oh, no. kind of present a warts and all figure. I genuinely believe that having come out of the counterculture, one of the tenets of the counterculture was that, you know, um, freedom for kids. It was that kids should be able to express themselves in every which way. But when you're talking about sexuality... Uh, in, you know, teenage uh, girls in particular, it gets very, very tricky. And I think that after the Sex Pistols, there is some sense with McLaren that he's hooked on outrage beyond substance, if you see what I mean. Mm. The, mm -hmm. um, the, the Sex Pistols did it naturally, just by walking down the street or sitting in a pub or conducting an interview. It came to them naturally. In a way, it looks slightly forced, at the same time, there are merits to such uh, activities as presenting Annabella Lewin, who was the lead singer of uh, Bow Wow Wow, in um, a kind of recasting of this 1860s painting by Manet called uh, Déjeuner sur l'herbe. Right, um, right. And so in that painting, the uh, people are clothed at the picnic and there is a young woman who is naked. It, it, it's not revealing, but it's clear that she's naked. Now, for McLaren to use that as the idea for an album cover, I don't think was pornographic in intent. I think that there was some kind of naive art intent, and also this 
willingness to shock or you know he used to quote Thomas Fuller's dictum which is craft must have clothes but truth loves to go naked and Mm. so he said that Annabella was the truth in that painting when you're looking at the or when you're using the kind of degraded form of popular music that stuff does doesn't fly does it it goes over everybody's yeah and it's a shame because you know there were things that were so far ahead of their time the rhythms, uh, you know, uh, of, of what Bow Wow Wow was doing. You mentioned his role in hip-hop early on, and it's stunning to look back on the history of hip-hop. You know, it was not mainstream music in 1983 when he made Duck Rock. Here he was sort of embracing this New York street art. The last person on earth that you would think would be in New York at the time making a record like Duck Rock, but there it was. Uh, what was it, like Zulu chants in that song and Appalachian folk music and, yeah. you know, break dancing as part of the presentation. This mess that he was creating and yet making something that there was a pop Buffalo gal go around the outside, round the outside, round the outside. Two buffalo gals go around the outside, round the outside, round the outside. Was that a genuine enthusiasm of his, or was it with this him sort of like fishing around for something that would get in people's face and, 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 and be confrontational in a way that was unexpected? No, I think it was a genuine enthusiasm. And also, it was if you look at his artistic practice, a lot of the time he was engaged in collage and clashing, you know, strange and unusual juxtapositions together. And so it's only him, really, that would come up with working with such great technicians as Trevor Horn, say, the producer, or Gary Langan, the engineer, who come up with the idea of, well, hey, you know, let's put square dancing together with hip-hop, because these are both folk musics. These are both musics from the street, which are giving the news to, to those who are involved in it. So I think he was genuinely attempting something new because it goes back to that thing about being bored with the dirigeur and the doctrinaire and the received. He was also very influenced by this experience when he was researching music at the Beaubourg Library in Paris where he came across a whole bunch of Folkways albums. Uh, Folkways was a great label, right? It's like an incredible label. They put out everything from Scottish waltzes to electronic music, usually beautifully packaged. And that was, he told me, that was one of the appeals, is that the packaging, and they had these instructional leaflets, and there's a particular series that they put out called Dances of the World's Peoples. And this was the music from around the world that was listened to as folk music. Uh, and so you got merengue in there, and he um, he decided that this could be the model for a travelogue. I think he was quite influenced by Orson Welles. I know he was a lot of the time. And um, he decided to create a kind of oral travelogue where he investigated folk musics. So you can see it as him kind of trying to upset the apple car in a way. But at the other point, at the other side of it, if you look at those videos, here's somebody who's thoroughly enjoying themselves, right? Whether they're in Soweto, whether they're 
with the uh, double Dutch girls skipping in the gym in the Bronx. You know, here's somebody who's really celebrating this stuff. And there's something mm-hmm. very joyful about that album, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And childlike, again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we've heard a lot from Leiden about his, uh, his attitude toward his former manager. Did Malcolm ever express any kind of remorse or any kind of feeling toward Leiden that you can share? I think John Lydon, it was quite interesting what he said when Malcolm died. You know, he said, that, you know, he was an entertainer. And, you know, remember that first and foremost, you know, he kind of had a lot of time for him. They sparred a lot. But I think the McLaren's view, and here's the thing about his personality, was that he wasn't particularly vengeful. He didn't hold grudges. He got over things very quickly. He had that thing which is obviously suppressed anger, which was the laugh all the time you know if he, he if you notice in public exchanges many of which are recorded he never loses his temper he would just mm. laugh but i think mm-hmm. his view was that do you want to get off the shelf and come for an adventure or not and john lyden the day that he was in the roebuck pub in the king's road and invited back by mclaren to sing into <laughs> a shower head to I'm 18 by the Alice Cooper band, you know, as a rehearsal, as a as an audition, that day changed John Lydon's life. And I don't think he would dispute that at all. And the fact is, mm-hmm. during the writing of my book, uh, it became clear that the three other members of the group, they were practicing musicians. They were beginning to become, and their ambitions were to become professional musicians. They didn't turn up for the first rehearsal with John Lydon. They couldn't see why Malcolm had gotten this singer who couldn't sing. So they didn't recognise his charisma or his potential. And so McLaren absolutely berated them and said, you've got to go with this guy. He will work out for you. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think Leiden would, rec- would, you know, accept that, definitely. We have been talking to Paul Gorman from the UK about his new book, the Life and Times of Malcolm McLaren. I love the design, too, Paul. Oh, good. The Thank A's you. are both circle A and <laughs> uh, So, so very fitting. It's it's a real accomplishment. Thanks for Thank coming on the show. Thank you very much. Well, it's been great. Great to talk to you guys. Thank you very much for having me. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, a delightful interview with the great Don Richard. That was one of the best chats we've had in a long time. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Sol Delgadillo. Katie Cott is our social media consultant.